Hello and welcome to Tea House Talks, the Insurgent Architect's House for Creative Writing podcast series. Today, we present an interview of Jordan Abel, led by Joshua Whitehead. My name is Mahmoud Ababne, and I am a research assistant for the Tea House project at the University of Calgary. Tea House is honored to be podcasting to you from Treaty 7 territory. We specifically acknowledge the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising the Siksika, Bikani, and Kainai First Nations, as well as the Tsutina First Nation, comprising the Chiniki, Perispa, and Wesley First Nations. We acknowledge also the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. In this interview, Joshua Whitehead will be talking to Jordan Abel about timely and the crucial topics. They raise questions and offer alternative ways of thinking about issues such as the strict and limiting nature of genre, the relationship between different indigenous authors and canlit, and the inability of English language and Western epistemology to fully grasp and reflect the experiences of the diverse indigenous peoples. They also reflect on their experience of taking grad and undergrad courses. Within this context, Abel and Whitehead suggest different approaches to transform and create spaces in creative writing courses and academia in general. Jordan Abel is a Nisga writer from Vancouver. He is the author of The Place of Scraps, Uninhabited, and Engine. Abel's latest project, Nisga, is a deeply personal and autobiographical book that attempts to address the complications of contemporary indigenous existence and the often invisible intergenerational impact of residential schools. Abel recently completed a PhD at Simon Fraser University and is currently working as an assistant professor in the Department of English and Film Studies at the University of Alberta, where he teaches indigenous literatures and creative writing. Joshua Whitehead is an Ojibwe Cree two-spirit storyteller and academic from Big West First Nation on Treaty 1 territory in Manitoba. He is currently a PhD candidate lecturer and Killam Scholar at the University of Calgary, where he studies indigenous literatures and cultures with a focus on gender and sexuality. He is the author of Full Metal Queer and Johnny Appleseed. He is also the editor of Love After the End, Two-Spirit Utopias and Dystopias. I hope you enjoy the episode. Jordan, it's nice to see you. Hi. <laughs> okay, but before I begin, or maybe this could even be part of it, we got like Star Trek going. You got this like really cool gamer setup, this like nerd hangout <laughs> life, indigenous nerd life. I love it. And then like this alien poster, I want to believe. So <laughs> I didn't know this about you. Are you a Trekkie or? Oh, yeah, totally. 100%. And it's, uh, it's an X Files poster too. I think I just like am really into well i mean i love star trek probably because it's amazing and nobody loves it (laughs) as much as they should um (laughs) but you know i felt like this is a good good space to to be in for my writing oh i love that yeah yeah well okay wait i was just doing a reading last night um do you know nikita longman 
No. Oh, she's like this Cree. She used to tell she's Cree. Uh, she's living in S- Saskatoon, I believe. Now she's in Winnipeg working for U of Manitoba. Anyway, she had me come do a reading. And I was like, I'm going to pick like scenes I never really picked from Johnny. And I was talking about this in my on my res peg list there's like this little space nearby called jackhead which is also basically as a res too and there was like this infamous story of a ufo landing um in jackhead and then all this you know all all the natives are like oh my god the military came and it was like banana bone you know <laughs> but i've been like talking about this a lot i feel like just with myself or with other people so like stories about star people or like right for it was like aliens right or ufos do you have any of those or has I think it's like your work is kind of like fantastical in that sense in some some semblances. <laughs> I like I I don't personally, but uh, I came I, I grew up in like a really bizarre household where like my stepdad and my mom were like both like very deeply invested in more or less any conspiracy theory you can imagine, which uh, I think included included a belief in like life beyond earth (laughs) i've always been deeply fascinated you know but no no real no no experiences (laughs) oh i mean i think we mean yet (laughs) yeah (laughs) like what else could happen in 2021 covid (laughs) like remember that obelisk that showed up and everyone was like losing their minds (laughs) i I was like it's time they're here (laughs) yes (laughs) interesting like also like so i was just like rereading engine and so i blurbed nishka and i was like just revisiting that a bit but so like the western genre i i just like yet you i think you're like really drawn to pop culture as i as i've known you and i take it from westerns to like sci-fi or speculative fiction yeah so like i don't know like what is it about like genre that calls to you i suppose or I mean, like in literature or in like any type of visual medium I mean, I think the, you know, one of the lovely things about genre is that because it, it kind of appeals to me as a conceptualist, I think, you know, and as a conceptual writer, you know, I'm, I'm very drawn to certain kinds of constraints. And I, I think genre is a kind of constraint as well. The Western, for example, everything kind of, you know, fits a similar pattern. <laughs> you know, we're just talking about Star Trek, you know, every episode follows a kind of like specific pathway or like a set number of kinds of pathways. Uh-huh. Uh, and I, I I think that's that's something that I just find really appealing and and fun and interesting to kind of, you know, sometimes pull apart and deconstruct, but also, you know, something that I'm just into as a consumer of media. <laughs> I love that. I also like I have like multiple ways I want to go, but I think this is the more fun route first. Like tell me, have you been watching WandaVision or like I have, yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh my god! I just—I uh, I guess no spoilers, but I did finish it this morning. <laughs> well, I, I'm not gonna watch it as immediately as like, soon as this is over. I was like, okay. Division, it out. <laughs> well, I, I, won't, I won't say anything, but yeah, I, I have been watching, and it's been amazing so far. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Like, I don't know if it's too much. Like, by the time this comes out, One Division will be long done. But I, I just think it's like really uh, maybe this is what I see in your work too is like with WandaVision and there's like projections and illusions and it's all like very based in like decade genres especially of TV sitcoms uh, of dealing with like grief and pain and wounds and then I think I also see that in your like in your work too uh, clearly 
And I just like would say, like, I was so drawn. Like, I remember I first came across the place of scraps and then Injun came. And I just would also need to say, like, I would not have been the writer that I am if it wasn't for Injun. It was just so seminal to me in like your honesty as a writer and as a person in like talking about displacement and kind of being removed from community. It's also like my, my father was also a 60 scoop survivor. So I really kind of saw that. And like the Western genre, my dad is so attached. Like, what's the main guy's name? <laughs> I, I really don't like Westerns, but I appreciate them <laughs> because of my papa. Look at the main gunslinger, like Dirty Harry, is that his name? Or Clint Eastwood. Oh, That's it. yeah, that, that guy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. So like, I don't know, like, I think like the question I was curious to asking and asking is like, so like with my work and I, I see this with yours, moving into nonfiction or autobiography, I was curious with Nishka forthcoming, um, and I won't be giving too many spoilers away, but I'm, I'm interested in it. I'm excited for it. I think the world is, needs it. But like, so yeah, like how would you classify yourself as a writer? Yeah, because I, I think it's like very in line. I think just you have your own arena uh, of genre, um, but I'm curious like your thoughts on that. Yeah, you know, I, I honestly, I think about this all the time uh, in part because like that a question comes up, you know, like as even as writing, you know, a grants application the other, the other month. You know, and that question is like one of the first questions they ask you, like, what what genre is it that you're working in? And then I had to stop and think about that for like weeks because, you know, I, I think legitimately, like I've, I'm always thinking about where my work fits within or across genres. And certainly like The Place of Scraps was a book that was published as poetry, but mm-hmm. it's also a work of creative nonfiction in some cases in some moments and it's also a work of historical fiction in other moments mm. it's a work of photography in even more moments and then of course you know it's also erasure poetry so you know i think there's there's like a like that that book is a, a space in which all of those different genres kind of collide and overlap and and merge or intertwine or or it exists in relation to each other. I think like Nishka, likewise, I think follows a very similar path where it's both like very personal creative nonfiction, but also it's this found repositions nonfiction, you know, some some of it from like the family archive, some of it from some more official government kinds of places. And and then it's also concrete poetry. And then it's also photography, <laughs> you know, but then it's yeah. also like academic writing, you know, in certain spaces, because I have all those transcriptions of talks. I think the answer to that question is that like, I, I guess that I'm always thinking about like I'm always I'm always trying to address address a topic or address a problem and in order to try to address it in a way that I think is adequate I have to move through multiple genres to try and attempt like even attempt to capture the complexity of some of those issues and you know I wouldn't even say that I'm necessarily successful in doing so but that's what I'm attempting to do (laughs) well I think the griffin would argue otherwise but (laughs) (laughs) maybe who knows who knows that it's such a dice roll (laughs) there are other good books that year uh, yeah, exactly. I know, like, I just find that interesting, too, because I think it's something I'm wrestling with, as well as, you know, an Indigenous writer, a queer Indigenous writer. Um, it's just, like, maybe, like, I don't know if you have thoughts on this, but, like, placing ourselves as writers in the, the registers that we are in into the larger kind of literary landscape of 
Canadian literature. And I'm always trying to differentiate between like, just like we do in the kind of a decolonial practice. It's like, there's like what we call Canada, the nation state, right? And then there's also like in our kind of sovereign spaces. And also like thinking about that in a textual level too. So I don't know, like, do you have thoughts on like how you position yourself or your works in the larger schemes and or schematics even of Canadian literature? Like I really place mine as just like indigenous lit and then even more specific, like two-spirit Korean literature. But yeah, like, have you thought about that? Like what, if, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I think there's... And, and, arg- and arguments for potentially including uh, or potentially thinking about my, my work and, and, and your work and other works of Indigenous writers, you know, in, in multiple categories. I um, think I, I definitely don't describe myself as a Canadian Canadian writer. <laughs> I think some people <laughs> yeah. do, though. They write that in their bios. They're like, I am a Canadian novelist, <laughs> which I would never, I'd never do. You know, not only because I don't write novels, but, you know... Canada. <laughs> uh, and yeah, yeah. Line back. yeah exactly. <laughs> and so, you know, I don't know what to, I, I, like it's, I, I, sometimes I think about it from like a, like a pedagogical perspective too. Like some, sometimes people ask me to like come into a Canadian literature class, for example, and talk about my work. And is it like, does it make sense to talk about my, my writing in that context? I mean, I think it kind of does. I think it makes sense to talk about all Indigenous writing from some perspective. Well, maybe I should back up. I think it makes sense to talk about Indigenous writing. And, you know, if we're talking about Canadian literature, like, do you just ignore it otherwise? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, you, right? like I think you you have to talk about it, but you know I'm not I'm not crazy about that. I'm not crazy about being Canadian. I, I'd much rather you know like the place that I, I feel like I'm writing from is it's like a, a Niska place, but also an urban indigenous place, also a, a place of intergenerational trauma. Sometimes you know being. Uh, removed from my community by way of colonial violence, and I and I think that's a position that is is an important one to con- continue to represent and continue to talk about, and you know one that kind of exists within this complicated ways, you know, within both indigeneity and within Canada. Yeah, no, oh, exactly. So far. <laughs> <laughs> No, I 100% agree. Like, I don't know, like, I've also just been, multiple times, I've just been, like, consistently finding, like, the limitations of English as a language in, like, basically, like, what you're saying, like, you have these questions, and you don't know how to answer them, and you have to kind of bleed and blend genres together in order to kind of make this, like, mutated hybrid question mark, basically, an answer. And I find the same thing with me in English, where, like, I think as I progress through my books, like, you can see more and more of my use of, like, Cree in them, because I'm just finding English that's a lacking in the same sense that I would say. So for me, I've, yeah, I've just kind of tried to return to as much of my, as what I know at this point in time, Korea epistemologies and linguistic systems. It's so much richer, so much deeper. But like one of the main kind of, I would say, attributes of it is that we don't have genders in Cree. Uh, we have animations. And I've also like really been thinking lately about like story as an animate being, like it needs orality, both an oral sense and then oral A-U-R-A-L and to kind of be like breathe life into its animate. And I'm, I find I'm very much accountable to my texts as they are accountable to the communities, right? So I would say like for me, like this, like this book right here or like the, the books that we craft and create, we're like attached to umbilically. Like we don't have the ability as I would say indigenous writers or BIPOC writers to like disassociate this physical body that we inhabit 
from the, like this kind of textual body that also becomes like a, an animation or something we're accountable and written kinship with. So yeah, like, I don't know, like have, have, in your, in your kind of blossoming Uber right now too, like how have you found like Niska help, like Niska epistemologies, like have you found those have been helping in terms of changing direction or changing meaning or maybe answering some of the questions you are asking of yourself in the world? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, I, mean, I think it's a really good, good question. And, you know, one that I've, I've also struggled with, in part, because as an individual, you know, like, I, I haven't had access to those, to those epistemologies in the same ways that other NISCA folks have had, perhaps through their families or through their communities. And like, finding a pathway back to traditional NISCA knowledge has been a really difficult, rocky road for me. Because none of my family lives there anymore. And the the people who I've I've spoken to my like or the the people who I'm connected to in my family don't necessarily even speak NISCA. And you know, I think that's like there's all these roadblocks that are kind of set up for me. It's actually really like deeply painful sometimes to to see those roadblocks there and then to to attempt to overcome them in a way that also makes sense for me, but also to not get caught up in this trap of like seeing those roadblocks as being a personal failing and, you know, instead seeing them as a result of this awful systemic violence that Indigenous peoples have been subjected to. And in the in my case, you know, like very specifically, like the violence that originated in the Kokulitsa school where both of my grandparents attended, sometimes it feels like impossible to to escape that in some ways and to and to move forward. That being said, part of so part of Nishka, which is which is that book that's coming out later, there's there's a bunch of sections that that include my dad's art and my my dad was a traditional carver and and painter and he you know spent a ton of time learning traditional Niska artistry and I have like I don't have access to my dad but I have access to his to his work and so you know I've been part of part of that book for me has been like working through some of those some of those shapes and patterns and trying to move move them in ways that are, are meaningful to me and you know I think that that process can only take me so far it's it's one that like you know I, I see that as a as a movement towards you know certain formations of Niska knowledge and indigenous knowledge if that if that makes sense oh 100% I think that totally makes sense like I was going to think too like the, these blockages that we encounter and have uh, as people both displaced due in part to colonial violence and failed but enacted genocide is like yeah like I don't, I don't know like I also find like the very act of like storytelling and I guess that's what I would call myself in the basis form um, as someone who wrote poetry a novel I have nonfiction coming out too is that to me is just like kind of like um, an echo like a starling call backward like back and it really shows me like time is always intersecting but it almost kind of feels like a what's that person's name? You're like, you know, when you're in the water, like a Marco Polo call. Oh, <laughs> like, sure. I, I, yeah. It feels like that to me because like, you know, you helped edit Full Metal and Digiqueer. And in there, there's a poem, Miku Guanyi, which is about my mother or my grandmother who was murdered. And like the work that I've done with that and the accolades that singular one has received, like my grandmother is in Saskatoon in a like unmarked grave. 
but that for me, like the crafting of that, the creation of that, the kind of reading of it on a larger scale with the audience, for me, it was like almost like if we think about this intergenerational trauma as like a revenant or like possession, which definitely, most definitely feels like this, this kind of crafting of narrative and whatever form we make it in almost kind of feels like a, an exorcism, I guess I would say, like a purging, but also a gift giving and like a singing back. That's just what it feels like to me. Uh, it's like medicinal in that sense as well. I don't like what you like call any of your work, maybe more of like the later works that you've been doing and also type of like medicinal or exorcism type of work. Totally. Yeah, I, I, I think so. And I, uh, <laughs> you know, it's so funny. Like I, I remember when I was like in my MFA or like, you know, doing my undergrads, you know, or something like I remember like uh, people would sometimes say things like writing isn't supposed to be therapy. It's supposed <laughs> to be these like, I don't know, these amazing works of art. It's not meant for you to like work out your feelings, but it kind of always has been for me. <laughs> and I agree 100 <laughs> And I, I think that's that's where where, where your your work gets its, its power from, you know, because it's deeply personal, you know, and and likewise, like my mine too. Like I think that's like where the the energy is because it's something that we feel that we're trying to address or you know ideas that we're trying to to figure out and get at. Like I I for sure you know see Nishka as being like a book that was like deeply necessary for me to write just like on a personal level in order to speak to and name some of these specific traumas and moments of, of violence in my life that I kind of felt I had to speak to. And and likewise, you know, in my more, more poet, poetry work, you know, I think if we're to circle back to the Western genre, you know, like, I think those are like, I really like that term, uh, exorcisms that you use. Like, I think that like deeply diving into that genre and, and, and pulling it apart and re reorienting it and reconfiguring it, like that was really cathartic in a lot of ways. And, you know, I think is also helpful to speak back to those to that particular genre that has really kind of profoundly shaped not only indigenous lives but like perceptions about indigeneity in North America more broadly. Oh, most yeah. definitely. Like the Western has probably done the most damage, I would say, to indigenous peoples, like the hypersexualization of indigenous women, right? The hypermasculinity of indigenous men. And then just the fact that we're all all indigenous peoples are plains folks. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Like, why is that totem pole there by that TV? <laughs> we don't understand. <laughs> so funny you know it's it's I, I find it really interesting though like just thinking about the western genre in relation to let's say maybe speculative fiction you know where it like where the western you know was so damaging like sf is kind of the opposite it can be the opposite in some ways and thinking of like your recent edited collection love after the end which is really incredible you know, by the way, I, like I think it's incredible work to bring bring together all of these all of these writers, all of these indigenous writers who are doing these this really difficult, incredible work of prying open a space to exist. You know, mm. in a, a space to flourish, and you know, I think it really speaks to me in a powerful way. The like what that genre does. <laughs> Uh, as a and definitely in relation to the western that seem that you know is a thing that i just want to tear apart <laughs> you know <laughs> like this the spaces in love after the end are ones i just want to live in and move into <laughs> oh i'm glad yeah thank you like the writers were just so spectacular um that book has gone through 
its own journey, uh, <laughs> I will say. I um, <laughs> moving from presses for reasons I won't specify here. But yeah, I think like for me, like, yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Like the Western genre and like speculative fiction or SF are like two, the, the same coin, just different sides. Like one's about the frontier and Terra Nullius on the very like undiscovered land of Americas, right? And then the other one's the same thing in space. It's just like, a, yeah, the kind of, the kind of galactic frontier, I suppose I would say. <laughs> and I remember thinking, I was like, is this going to work? Like, for me, speculative fiction is so, one, individualistic. Two, it's like, I love cyberpunk and biopunk, but it's like always about, like, quote, unquote, the man, right? Surviving in the wilds. But yeah, it was important for me to, and I think for us, that me and the contributors, to have this text to envision Indigenous joy, even in spaces that are craft for as a kind of like a death chamber for indigenous peoples, right? Or indigenous other beings in space that I totally see what you mean. Like, I think like Injun and like all your work, it's just like a scalping bag, maybe of like Barbeau or the other Western genres that you're looking at, right? And then like pulling it all out and making a junkyard of it, but then crafting like this perfect utopic home, I would say inside a text that was never, that was deemed to harm us. I think that's a really kind of beautiful gardening Totally. Yeah, no, I, I love I love that framing. And, you know, I think there's, there, there is, there, I think there's some active way that we as as artists can, or some active role that we as artists can take in like, in dismantling some of these more canonized texts and, <laughs> and genres and, and making them our own making something out of them that re- reflects us in a in a way that you know makes more sense to us rather than just leaving it there <laughs> oh for sure i think that's something that you and i do really well like in tandem is like taking the canon and like me infecting with a virus you dismantling the entire like a rubik's cube that's falling apart i was asked this question last night too someone asked me um like why are you doing a phd like isn't that completely against what you're trying to do in this decolonial way and i thought about that but i'm also like thinking now like too like as both of us in the spaces of the academy like yeah like i don't know do you think there is a particular particular role that we can use as indigenous artists in the senses that we're in in thinking about like the canon or like kind of yeah i would say popularized western forms of knowledge like how how do you think that informs your work I, I guess the way I think about it is that there are there are so many canons plural. There's uh, so many yeah. like so, so many ways to imagine the canon, and I think and you know within like uh, certain areas there are there are their own canons you know that are maybe less less obvious than than other canons, and I, I think it's it's always to be content contended with in some ways, like especially within the academy. I I don't know I don't know what your undergrad experience was like exactly but I remember you know during mine like I, I didn't read a single book by an indigenous writer and I think you know looking back on it that's pretty f-ed up and you know really disappointing yeah. and you know in my my high school experience as well and I and I think there's I mean I I think we should we should all be playing like an active role in trying to disassemble the canon or reconfigure reconfigure it in in some way that it actually includes writers that matter exactly. <laughs> and and people that matter and not just continually like reproduce like the old dead white dude voices of <laughs> yesteryear or what have you uh, because it, yeah. like and I I feel like you know when I have sometimes very occasionally 
you know, I'll have like this conversation with somebody who wants to protect the canon and, you know, just wants to teach Shakespeare endlessly. And I think that person's always going to exist, which is why, like, I think we always need to confront it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like, like, unfortunately, I think work that is without an end. But, you know, I think, I mean, like, just thinking about uh, Full Metal, you know, that work confronts the canon in very particular ways. Like, you dive into a a whole number of canonical texts and rethink them. (laughs) And it's from across genres, too, if I'm not mistaken. It is, yeah. Like, I I think I, like, first of all, I just need to say, like, I love this, like, the Keynesian use of yesteryear as we talk about the canon. <laughs> Hashtag bring back yesteryear. Um, it's fun. It's fun to say. It sounds good. The tongue. Love it. Um, but I agree with you. Like I remember, like in my undergrad, in my high school, I think we read we read April Rain Tree, which was like the really only Indigenous text that we read. Oh, wow. that's something. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and then I'll be. Yeah. We talked about like the trauma of it. It's a very trauma heavy book. But and then in my undergrad, like I was like, I'm going there for English and creative writing. I really want to be like a literary scholar and a writer I don't even think I write any I think I no black no indigenous writers at all definitely during my undergrad and then in my master's it was very little actually I need to re- like back up a little bit at the very last year of my undergrad when I had switched over to like the English honors I was working just meeting and then working a little bit with Jenny Hadrian Wills and she had this like individual novel study course which was all on Toni Morrison and I just like hit beloved and I was like what was that <laughs> like this is what Amazing. stories should be right um and then my master is very little too and then even in my PhD it was very minimal until I crafted a course on two-spirit literature and or like requested it be in in classes I was helping TA I was like we're doing post-colonial theory but we're not doing decolonial theory yeah such like a moral and ethical failing I think on the part of the academy of what it chooses to include uh, it has free reign and agency to, to choose and or updated syllabi as it wants to, but it chooses not to. And I think, yeah, so I just like always in the back of my mind, thinking about the ways in which academia shapes us, its relevancy to us as indigenous peoples, but then also like how we put that into text, right? And I think like, I think I see like you, like basically your all of your work is just like, it is so, it has like the tools of the master's house as Audre Lorde would say, right? Or it also has theory and especially in Nishka has actual transcripts from conferences that puts it into something that's I think more tangible and accessible so yeah like do you find that your work like how do you figure yourself as a writer as an academic at the same time I mean I think I I never intended to be an academic and I I don't know if I I am I'm probably not (laughs) I'm probably not an (laughs) academic but I you know, I find it really useful and beneficial to exist within academic spaces. Like, mm-hmm. I, I really, I appreciate the funding or the the, the <laughs> yeah. salary, you know, that's, that's really helpful. Like, I, I think I have, I, I guess the way I describe it is that I've always just wanted to be a writer and whatever I could do to allow me to live and, you know, exist as a writer is something I've been willing to do. <laughs> and I, and, you know, somebody really early on told me, that uh, if I want to be a poet in particular, you know, it's really good sometimes to also be an academic because poets don't get paid very much. (laughs) And that's always stuck with me. And so, you know, I kind of just kept like moving in that direction, even though I resisted it a lot. After, so after I finished my undergrad, like I 
didn't immediately apply to grad school. I, I intended actually never to go to school again. You know, I, I went <laughs> and worked as like a bartender at Chili's for like two years. And then, you know, when I did my MFA, like I never, like when I finished that, I never intended to go to school again. And then I got stuck in this not so great office job. And I, and it was, I don't know, felt like it was sucking the life out of me. So I was like, oh, I should go do a PhD. And when I did that, you know, I never intended to finish it. Like I honestly applied so that I could get a couple of years of funding and library access. And I I, I know, there's no imagining that I would ever come to the end of it or that when I, if I did come to the end of it, that there would be something there. I kind of did all that stuff to try to exist as a writer and and I think that now that I, you know, have this uh, position, you know, within an English department as an assistant professor, you know, I'm still kind of feeling like I'm doing this, you know, in a lot of ways just to exist as a writer. But the teaching, but the teaching that I get to do has been really cool and rewarding and and helpful. And I'd love to continue doing that, whether whether or not that I, I I'm still waiting I'm still waiting for them to to discover that I'm not a real academic though (laughs) and to ask me to to leave accordingly (laughs) they they haven't yet so knock on wood (laughs) I'm knocking I tell you that one thing my lips are sealed I will not tell (laughs) yeah I think like as poets like there is like the siren call of academia at least for the funding and like the somewhat stability of it (laughs) so I feel that yeah, so like as a teacher too, um, so I'm also just finishing my dissertation and heading onto the job market. And like what I wanted to do ideally would be to like teach creative writing and literature on the side. So it's not just the same. But like earlier we were talking about like the failings of academia. And I'm interested, like, because you, you did an MFA and I just did like a master's in cultural studies. I kind of wish I did an MFA, but that was fun too. But yeah, so like how, like, so do you teach creative writing right now or... I do. Yeah, I teach, I'd say half of my teaching is creative writing, and then the other half is Indigenous literatures. Okay, that's like the dream. (laughs) Totally. Yeah, no, it's so good. (laughs) You know, like slotted an 8 a.m. Shakespeare course. Have fun. (laughs) (laughs) I did did actually teach, uh, when I was doing my PhD, I taught a, or I, I wasn't, isn't the primary teacher as a teaching teaching assistant in a romanticism course and i was so out of my depth <laughs> oh my God. even though I, lo- I love i love frankenstein mary shelley is great <laughs> yeah frankenstein's a good one she's a keeper yeah <laughs> all, all of the rest of it i i still am struggling with <laughs> <laughs> very bad <laughs> so as like a creative writing teacher yeah like i don't know have you so like maybe like we were talking earlier about the failings, right? And maybe um, as both people who have taken creative writing texts or courses, I always kind of found like, I mean, you were also saying people were like confused about what this is or like also don't write for yourself or as therapy. Yeah, I, I find that creative writing courses do not prepare, and I learned this the hard way, but here we are now, do not prepare people to actually be writers. And I would say in the spaces of academia, the creative writing classroom and workshop style is like so set up to privilege obviously a certain type of storytelling, which is about like aestheticism and plot driven, really isn't about introspection uh, and more specifically for like BIPOC folks. 
it's like write what you know show and don't tell it like completely it fails when they say you're doing that but we don't want you to do that right don't you don't toss your personal histories or your traumas or your triumphs instead like think about this other thing i was like I, we can't just write about like the shapeliness of things for the sake of the shapeliness because writing is often like a survival strategy and coping mechanism so like yeah like having both like you specifically like having gone through this and experienced this like has that changed for you the space of how you craft a creative writing classroom oh yeah 100 percent. i did classes in my undergrad but i took a million during my uh during my mfa and one of the things that came out right away uh when i was doing my mfa was that you know I, and i was working on the place of scraps um like for that first year of my MFA and that text, like the, the place of scraps did not fit well within a workshop setting. Like it was not a, a work that's, I don't know, it wasn't a work that could be workshopped in the same way that you can workshop other kinds of things. Like it presented all of these, all of these difficulties and all of these roadblocks. And I think that that was a really, you know, kind of eye-opening experience for me because I was I was there trying to figure out how to write this book and the model that we were working in that was supposed to help me figure out how to write this book turned out to be that work, you know, I think really kind of exposed the flaws, you know, in that workshop process. And, you know, I think like it was... It, like, you know, the structure of the class itself, I think, wasn't set up in such a way to accommodate for that kind of writing, and nor, nor were the instructors or the, or some, like, a lot of my peers didn't really, weren't willing to, like, adjust in such a way that it would actually be a useful shift to talk about this thing. So I really, uh, I internalized that. <laughs> and, you know, as, like, as a teacher now, I feel like I spend all of this time trying to create spaces for work that doesn't easily fit those models, you know, and, and try to open up what a creative writing class might look like in a way that is generative for people where they feel like they can create what they want to mm -hmm. create and not feel bound by the rules of the class. And, you know, just one small example of this, like I remember you know, taking a class where they said, like, all, all poems must be, like, at, like, at most, I don't know, 50 lines long or something, and in this font, and it's like, oh, okay, already I can't do what I want to do. Yeah, <laughs> like, and typeface already, already too. <laughs> yeah, like, I'm already, f like, this artificial constraint that you're placing around poetry or what it's how you're imagining poetry in this context you know is already so limiting and I think that that's perhaps it's like a really obvious example but I think you know so many creative writing classes you know have those kinds of constraints put put on them and I think you know sometimes it's for reasons that are imperceptible to the students but as a as a former student myself, like I really kind of feel like that's not that's not the right way to go about it. <laughs> and, in, <laughs> and instead, there should be some more work put into helping helping the students do the things that they're really interested in doing, whatever that happens to be. And so I've really kind of you know shifted my pedagogical practice to to one that's more open about genre, more open about form and length and and medium even. And you know I think it's not perfect, but I'm hoping that it's it's going in the direction of fostering an environment where creativity can flourish. Oh, yeah. 
like that sounds like utopic I'm like can I go back in time and take your class because <laughs> I'm gonna be a very different person uh, right now yeah the, the constraints like specifically like for me and like I also like I don't know like people are like Johnny Appleseed is a novel and but he's always read as like confession almost like people keep calling it memoir I got called Johnny Johnny Whitehead on CBC the other day I was like my oh name my is Joshua <laughs> <laughs> and so like um, people are like it's too poetic to be prose and then you helped me edit Full Metal and people are like it's too prosaic to be poetic <laughs> and now I'm writing a nonfiction. I was like who knows what they're going to say this it's like photography I guess <laughs> I think it's just like the divisions between the genre like in terms of writing like between form and genre and medium even and like I think you do that so wonderfully of like putting this all together right for me I would say like that would be like the utopic vision of a creative writing classroom that allows for this kind of experimentation and the hybridity of different texts bleeding and talking to one another that I would say yeah that's what I hope and wish for and that's what I needed and it sounds like I think this is what students need specifically coming in and hopefully soon out of a pandemic that has completely shifted our communication styles, our writing styles, our writing habits, right? Yeah, like, I don't know. So like in an ideal world, if you had no constraints from like the academy or, and you had unlimited access to funds, what would your ideal creative writing classroom look like? I mean, I, I think there's, I, I love this question. Uh, I, have, I have ideas. I mean, I think the, <laughs> first, the first thing I would do is throw away grading. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> uh because that makes no sense and you know isn't artificial thing that I I have to do for my creative writing classes but I try to just give them all A's. I think that's like so fundamental though to writing instruction that it should be a thing that happens outside of those rubrics. I, mm. I guess, like, I, I think this maybe is a pandemic response, but I'd love <laughs> to be in the same room as people again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. At, at some sort of round table, you know, where we can all talk collectively for however long makes sense. I think there's, like, utopic ideal, I think, in my head of what that space might look like. But I think it would also... I think it would very much be a space that everyone is well, welcome in. I think like radical forms of inclusivity are really wonderful. And and I think we always need to lean more into that. And like mm. the, the university itself, you know, is an exclusive space that, you know, I'm not like super happy with most of the time. And, exactly. you know, the classes that we, that we teach or that we attend are ex- exclusive spaces. And, and I think that they really... It would it would benefit everyone if it wasn't that if it wasn't like that <laughs> in, in a utopia. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully, it's yeah. on the horizon as we all get vaccinated. Yes, <laughs> the dream, the dream. I know, same. I like. I wish we could all be in person. Like we would have had you here. Could have like did this radical cool talk, and then you know we could have went to like a little pub after, like the old ways. But alas, we cannot. Yesteryear was a yesteryear. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So I'm um, gonna call. I'm gonna call my next book yesteryear. <laughs> Patent pending. No, just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I have one last question for you. Sure. So, like, yeah, as being an indigenous writer and as one who I would say is like one of the I would say forefront poets right now on the scene of indigenous writing and Canadian literature. 
I would say like, I, I have this thing where I've noticed, where I've noticed. So we were, I was talking earlier about like the bleeding, like ex the expectation of what we write as immediately confession and specifically both of us moving into like what folks might call nonfiction now, autobiography. Yeah, have you noticed this thing? I just keep calling it literary voyeurism where it feels like because people have purchased, like they went to the bookstore, purchased engine for $16.95 and read it. And then when they meet you or you're doing a talk on one of these or on an interview, right? The, the kind of expectation of like, yeah, the, voyeur, the voyeurism of it, like the expectation that you are going to spill and let them eat and have like from the palms of your hand, like trauma, but also insights, like secret little codes or Easter eggs. Have you noticed that before? Or like, I think this is, you know, it, it's so, so strange and complicated how people read like how specifically like non-indigenous peoples like read indigenous literatures and you know i think that there's an ar ar argument out there that says like only only certain kinds of indigenous literatures are are even published because they need to kind of like fit this imagined criteria for non-indigenous audiences to consume those stories in some way and and trauma you know is like a, a central part of that like if, it, exactly. if it's not if it's not traumatic in some way or if it's not confessional if it doesn't do all those things then it's not legible as indigenous writing and i think that that is really strange and problematic and a thing that i've i i, I definitely yeah, I, I definitely see like Love After the End even like contending with this, you know, like, you know, especially in the way that like you uh, you make this shift away from talking about dystopias and towards talking about utopias that there's like and then there's a way that like like indigenous formations of utopia aren't legible to non-indigenous peoples you know or aren't of interest and you know to me that's part of the reason why i think they're so powerful they do something that is 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 outside whatever limiting settler gaze <laughs> uh that uh that it i guess only wants to see indigenous peoples in in a certain light and i kind of you know i think about this too you know as somebody who has very recently like written that creative nonfiction book that you know is actually all about trauma in some ways and i i think there's space for that too i just you know i kind of feel like that shouldn't be the only thing that's expected from us <laughs> you know and like I, I really kind of feel like we need to have the agency to tell the stories or the create the art that we want to create that can exist in whatever plane of imagination and not to be limited i guess by what non-indigenous peoples expect from us if that makes sense no, a hundred percent makes sense. And I think there is space for it. Like when I read Nishka and I sent like the blurb for you and to your publisher, like, yes, it is like traumatic, but that is also who we are. Like not all of who we are, but it's a semblance of our stitching that I would say, yeah, like when non-Indigenous readers read these, I don't think they take into consideration that you can eat a book, like you can eat a body. But like in say for Nishka's, for example, like when I read it, I was like, I feel like I'm being like, my hand is being held as we're moving through this. Like it's more of a collective than it is kind of a peeping. And yeah, I totally agree with you in terms of like the expectation of trauma and trauma pornography in indigenous literatures, which I think a lot of people are shifting and changing and I'm happy to see it. 
so like on that note, think about utopias and joy. I can never not hear Billy Ray Belcourt talk, talking about the conspiracy <laughs> of Indian joy. Like what's bringing you joy right now? Do you have anything that you want to like share with us or things we should check out or music we should listen to? I know you have a new <laughs> little one who I'm sure is bringing you tons and tons of joy. Yeah, uh, my baby daughter, Phoenix, is just seven months old, and she's bringing me (laughs) infinite amounts of joy right now. And she's also, she's so tall. I guess she's just, like, enormously tall for her age. (laughs) She's, like, like in, like, the 98th percentile of her tallness for, like, a seven-month-old. So I don't know what that means. Uh, (laughs) But she's bringing me lots of joy. WandaVision is bringing me lots of joy. Oh, I love <laughs> I just, to hear it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually kind of just like re- reliving all of the MCU right now through Disney Plus, which has been amazing. <laughs> um, I love it. And also just like reading, reading as, as much as I can. <laughs> we love it. We love it. WandaVision. I'm going to go finish it after this. We'll Perfect. text. We'll catch up. <laughs> We'll spill all of our conspiracy theories. Excellent. I'm into I'm it. I'm so happy to hear it. Uh, send my love to little Phoenix. Uh, also, accept like, your address. I want to send you like some like baby clothes because I love buying baby clothes. Um, <laughs> but I just want to say like this also has been just a huge joy for me. And like it's been a long time since we've seen each other. I really missed you. Um, I just want to thank yeah, you from too. the bottom of my heart. And such an honor just to like, spend some time with you. So thank you for joining us at Tea House. Well, thank you so much. And it's been such a pleasure for me too. I wish wish we could get together in person. We hope you enjoyed this interview of Jordan Abel by Joshua Whitehead. I am Mahmoud Ababni and you are listening to Tea House Talks. We recognize the generous support of the Canada Research Chairs Program and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. We also appreciate the support of the Faculty of Arts and the Department of English at the University of Calgary, where our offices are housed, as well as the guidance of Marcus Tuckle at the Taylor Family Digital Library. Tea House is run by Larissa Lai, Paul Monnier, Joshua Whitehead, Aruna Srivastava, Mark Lynch, Marjorie Ganda, Ryan Stern, and me. Stay tuned for the next episode of Tea House Talks. For more on the work of Tea House, including symposia, panels, and readings, please check our website at www.teahouse.ca. That's T-I-A-House.ca. If you like to be in touch, send us an email at teahouseyyc at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.